So there's this TV show that's been uh, growing quite popular these last few years. Um, and um, those of you under 40 will probably immediately get what I'm talking about. Uh, the rest of us uh, might need a little more explanation. I'd tell you the title of the show, but I got a problem. Um, uh, the problem is that the first word in the title, though spelled differently phonetically, sounds like a curse word. And so um, I like to think I'm hip, right? I'm like, don't we all? Um, yeah, if we're being honest. But, but I don't think I'm quite edgy enough to be, to be cussing in, in the pulpit. So uh, I'm just going to call the show Blank Creek. Now, yeah, the, the show is probably as colorful as the name. And uh, before you start to fire off an email to Pastor Marty about sort of uh, the heresy in the pulpit or whatever, um, let me know. I'm not commending the show to you. But I am say, raising it as an example because it's a show actually captures, in my view, uh, it's just a great illustration of uh, what we're going to talk about in our text today, okay? Um, see, the show's about this extremely wealthy Hollywood family called the Rose Family, if you, if you haven't, haven't seen it. And they live, live this very lavish, extravagant lifestyle. And as you can tell from the picture, they're fairly eccentric people. Okay, and they're, they're just flying around the world doing all these amazing things until one day when the father, Johnny Rose, is investigated and found guilty of fraud. So the government or the court, whoever it is, comes in and seizes everything they possess. Everything except one small interesting asset. Okay, a town called we'll call Blank Creek. And because everything that they have has been seized, they've got nowhere else to go, they've got nowhere to, to, to basically, you know, uh, reside other than this little town. And the problem for them is that this town isn't exactly Aspen or Vail or the Hamptons in Rhode Island. It's a backwater town filled with the kind of people who live in backwater towns, okay? And they are not the kind of people, obviously, that the Rose family would ever choose to associate with. To make matters worse, the only place in the house, the only, the only place they could stay, the only place available in the town is this kind of seedy one-star motel. And that's where they're stuck. So, um, these are not pictures, I don't, I don't, first of all, they're characters, let's just put that out there first, but, but these are probably not believers, but I'm thinking at this point they found their own version of hell. And as you might imagine, the show sort of begins with their desperate attempts to try to get out of their situation, to try to get out of this town. Now I mentioned the show is, 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 is grown wildly popular, and I don't know what it is, um, we can speculate. Maybe we all, maybe people just really like to see rich Hollywood people suffer. I don't know. Uh, it could be that we're just drawn to kind of these, accent, these kind of eccentric storylines and these even more eccentric characters. But it also might be that there's something about these stories that resonates with us. There's something about people when they get caught in circumstances that they just don't want to be in, just desperate to try and get out of them any way possible. Maybe you've been there. It might be uh, a physical location, like the roses, okay? I used to, I, back in my former career, I used to have to go down to Houston, Texas during the summer. I felt like 
that was an exile for me. Um, if you're from Houston, it's in, I, I apologize, but it was really hot and sweaty and, you know, but it, it may be a place, but it may be more than that. It might be a career. It may be a job that you're in right now. Or it may be something even, even more serious that, that you just desperately want out of. It might, be, it might be an illness. It might be cancer. It might be grief, a period of grief if you've lost a loved one or, or something else is going on in your life. It might be depression. It might be any number of things that we face. Either way, we want a way out. To be honest with you, um, yeah, I've gone through a little bit of this even recently. Something's going on in my life where I'm going, God, what, what are you doing here? And, and God said pretty clearly, you wanted to preach on this. Um, so let's live it. Um, and that's actually not a joke. I tell you what. <laughs> um, we got to, you know. Um, but, but okay, but in the text we're looking at today, we're going to find people in a justice situation. You see, it pertains to the Judeans uh, who were taken captive uh, uh, by the Babylonians in 597 BC. And so we know God allowed their captivity as a result of their ongoing sin and their idolatry. And so now they find themselves in exile in Babylon, and they just want their old life back. They just want to get back to Jerusalem. They just want to get back. Uh, but rather than looking for a path forward where they are, kind of like the Rose family, they're, they're frantically looking for any path out. They're looking for, for a shortcut. Basically, they want parole, okay? And their, their desperation, they become the, willing to abandon the plan of God for the empty promises of false prophets who are telling them not what God is doing, but what they want to hear. And so today we're going to see how God responds to their desire for deliverance uh, from the very circumstances that got, they got themselves into. Okay, what we're going to see is that God responds in three ways, okay? Three ways. Uh, first, he provides instruction. Next, he provides a warning. And third, he provides a promise, okay? He provides instruction, he provides a warning, and he provides a promise. But in all cases, what we emerge is a larger, is a larger lesson that we are, we're to trust God and we're to trust his plan alone and none other. Because God's plan, obviously, is trustworthy. His plan is reliable. His plan also is deliberate. So what we're going to be looking at is Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, and we'll have most of the script, uh, uh, the text up on the, on the screens as well. Um, but before I jump into, into those, the actual verses, I just want to give a little bit of a context here. Um, we're going to back up a little. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to summarize kind of what happens in chapter 28. That leads us up to this moment. And, and at that time, we find a prophet by the name of Hananiah who's prophesying in the name of God that he, that God, would return the exiled Jews back to Jerusalem in two years. In other words, he's prophesying peace and saying, two years, and God's going to return all the, all the Judeans back. Jeremiah is, is wisely skeptical of Hananiah and warns him, uh, basically, that any prophet who makes such a prediction of peace will only be from God if it comes true. In other words, Hananiah, you better watch what you're talking about here, okay? Hananiah doubles down. He basically ignores uh, Jer uh, uh, Jeremiah and continues to, 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 to preach false prophecy. So God intervenes, basically tells uh, Jeremiah to warn Hananiah that if he doesn't cut out, if he doesn't stop, if he doesn't stop prophesying falsely, uh, he's going to surely die. And that happens. That's how we end chapter 28. 
But the problem persists, you see. And the problem is that people are, are still clinging to these false prophecies and, and they found their way to the, to, to the Judeans in exile. And as a result, they're, they're separating themselves from the culture they're in. They're choosing to wall themselves off and wait out their expected deliverance rather than, than live among the people where God, where God has deliberately sent them. Now, I want to stop there and ask you this. Does this sound at all familiar? See, for Christians in our culture today, we can feel like we're in this place of exile. The culture is falling apart all around us. And, and our temptation might be to wall out the culture and just pray like crazy for Jesus to come back. Come back, Jesus, rescue us. But we've got to be careful because if we find ourselves kind of yielding to that temptation, we, we probably need to listen to what God has to say to the, the Jews in exile. This also might be true in our personal lives. If we find ourselves in these circumstances we really don't want to be, and our temptation might be to withdraw from God, to change the situation, to ask Him to change the situation, when we should really be asking Him, God, what would you have me do while I'm in this? And again, it's times like these that we have to resist this temptation. You know, it kind of reminds me I, I, when I used to commute to D.C. And I'd sit there uh, in the parking lot that is I-395 during rush hour. And I'd pray to God, get me out of this situation. It's driving me crazy. And, you know, he never did. I mean, there was no, like, magical or supernatural separating of the vehicular waters. And in retrospect, he was saying, oh, Alec, I think I need to teach you something. It's called Patience. Um, I'm still learning, um, but, but you know, traffic woes are one thing, but ungodly cultures, wars, pandemics, tanking economies, lost jobs, cancer diagnoses, failing marriages, these are quite another. And when in these, where in these times, I want to ask you, where in these times does God find you? And does he find you kind of hiding in a corner waiting him, for him to, to spring you from this, from this sort of perceived prison you're in? Are you looking at the culture around you and thinking it's time that we, we, we fill the moat and raise the drawbridge? So that's, again, where the, exactly where the Jews were in today's text. So again, let's see how God responds. All right, so we know these false prophecies are circulating, and the people, they're grasping to them and using them as a, an excuse kind of to isolate themselves from the culture they're in and, 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 and grasp to the, the, the false prophecy that they're going to be delivered in, in two years or or maybe less even. And, and to address this, God dictates through the letter, uh, a letter through Jeremiah that is sent to Jerusalem uh, to the elders in exile and the priests and the prophets and the elders whom Nebuchadnezzar uh, had taken into exile. We see this in Jeremiah 29.1. And as I mentioned before, God responds to their behavior in three ways, right? What does he do? He gives them instruction and he gives them a warning, yes, and he gives them a promise. Well, thank you. You're listening this morning. Uh, but let's start by looking at his instruction. We're going to jump, jump ahead to verse 4. He says, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay? Uh, two things I want to note here. First, notice that God refers to himself as the Lord of armies, or your text may say the Lord of hosts. Uh, he does this throughout Jeremiah's prophetic words to the exiles. And so, but off the bat, we clearly see him asserting his sovereignty, his power, his authority. There's no army, including the Babylonian army, over which he's not firmly in control. If God wants to free his people, he's very capable of doing it at any time. 
Second, God is very clear about who did the sending here. He says, whom I have sent into exile. In other words, he's reminding the people that he was active in their exile. He planned it. Moreover, God planned it because of the people's sin. Our temptation in difficult situations might just be to think God made some kind of mistakes, but God, God is not a God of mistakes. His plans are flawless and intentional. They're deliberate. So having set that record straight, God now, with the, with the people, he instructs them to do three things that would have been curious to a people living in exile against their will. So, so let's look at these, okay? In chapter, uh, sorry, verse 5, he says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. So the first thing God does is he instructs his people to abandon their transient mentality and prepare physically to dwell in the land. See, while they want to, may want to pack up and get out, he basically says build houses, plant gardens. These are long-term commitments. God is telling his people to, to commit physically to the community where they found themselves. Right? Buy some land, take on a mortgage, plant crops, wait for them to grow. And you know what? God didn't impose some kind of unattainable mandate here for, these, for the people. In fact, he paved the, ways, the way for the Jews not only to dwell, but indeed thrive in exile. We know from the Bible that the Jews were permitted to own homes. In fact, the prophet Ezekiel had his vision regarding the abominations in Jerusalem, basically while sitting in his living room in Babylon. And Ezekiel 8.1 tells us that. But, but more than that, there's archaeological evidence that the Jews in exile were permitted to build houses, to freely move about to assemble, to meaningfully participate in the economy, and even to worship. The ancient tablets discovered in modern-day Iraq show that the Judeans traded goods, ran businesses, and even helped in the administration of the Babylonian kingdom, which we knew already, by the way, obviously, from the book of Daniel. We have that same freedom. But are we making the most of it? Are we building houses in our culture, or are we pitching tents? Whether it's a culture you're in or the circumstances you're in, God may be calling you to start laying a foundation right where he has you to build on. So let's look at what God next instructs them. He says in, in verse 6, Take wives and father sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands so that they may give birth to sons and daughters and grow the numbers there and do not decrease. And grow in numbers there and do not decrease. So having instructed his people to prepare to live physically among the Babylonians, he now instructs them, instructs them essentially to live generationally among them. See, the Judeans' minds are set on a return to Jerusalem, but, but let me ask you this, when you're anticipating a move, is that the best time to plan a wedding? Is it a good time to get pregnant? No. Right? We don't talk about packing up and getting married and having kids. No, we talk about settling down and getting married and having kids. These are things you do when you're planning to stay a while. So God here is sending a message that this era of exile is going to last generations. Indeed, most of them probably won't return to Jerusalem ever. And if the people refuse to get about the business of procreation, there may not be anybody to send home when the time comes. The bigger picture that God gives here, though, is that his people are to go about the business of enjoying the immense blessings he's provided them, the blessings of family, the blessings of children, no matter where they are. He says, grow in numbers, God tells them. Do not decrease. In other words, take, take over the place with your presence. Don't yield to it. Don't hide from it. Don't head for the bunker or head for the hills. 
Be in it. Live in it. Make life in it. I sometimes hear people say that they don't want to bring children into such a crazy, messed up world. Do you hear this? It seems God is saying just the opposite here. He's saying, have children because the world around you is messed up. Have children. Raise them to believe in me. Be amazed what I will do with them to change your messed up world. Finally, he instructs them in verse 7. He says, seek the prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord in its behalf, for in its prosperity will be your prosperity. See, for these Judeans, this would have been curious indeed, wouldn't it have been? I mean, what would you have thought? The people are to seek the prosperity of those who violently carried them off into exile? You know, the word translated prosperity is probably very familiar to you. It's, it's shalom. We associate it with peace, but it also means completeness and soundness, and yes, even wealth, welfare, and prosperity. So God is telling the exiles to work for the good of the city and those even it. And those in it, even if that city is a city whose marauding government took them captive against their will. He also tells them to pray for the city. And, you know, the Hebrew word for pray here, palal, literally refers to, means to intervene. It, it's pointing squarely to intercessory prayer. God says, you are to pray to me for the people of this land into which you have been taken. Pray for me for the city. Pray for, to me for the land. Why? Because as he instructs them, in its prosperity will be your prosperity. In other words, your welfare, your peace, your completeness is now intertwined with the community in which I have placed you. He's saying you can't, they can't live apart from the city and still prosper. You might observe that this is precisely a fulfillment, I think, of what God promised Abraham in Genesis 12.3, namely that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to the nations. I think this is, a, this is all according to, to God's deliberate plan. But to be part of his plan, his people needed to be obedient. And it's the same for, for Christians. It's the same with us. For we know, too, that if we belong to Christ, we are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promises, Galatians 3.29 tells us. We, too, have a calling to be blessings to God, to the nations. Okay, let's move on to the next thing God does. God gives a warning, okay? So following his instruction, God moves on to warning the people about a temptation they're facing, and that, namely, that's false prophets who are promising them all the things they want to hear. And he warns them not to give in to this temptation. He says in uh, verse 8 and 9, he says, For this is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says, do not let your prophets who are in your midst or your diviners deceive you. And do not listen to your, their interpretations of your dreams, which you dream. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is critical. It was critical for the Judeans then and it's critical for us today because it's not the first time that, and certainly will not be the last time that God's people are warned of false prophets peddling empty promises to further their own purpose. Marty has been doing a stellar job of showing us just this message, I think, these last few weeks. And so, so, so God warns of this. And he warns of this, as you know, probably through, uh, through Paul in 2 Timothy 4.3. For the time will come where they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desire. See, God is warning both through Paul and Jeremiah that this world is polluted by false teachers who will tell you what you want to hear to gain their following. 
And let me assure you, this is alive and well in our culture and across our world. I'll give you one example that jumps to mind for me is, is the prosperity gospel. It's this message that if you give enough to God, He will make you rich. Or if you give enough to God or do enough for Him, He'll, he'll cure your illness. Or, 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 and if He doesn't, obviously you didn't do enough. First of all, you can't give enough to God. <laughs> so stop trying. And second, that's not the gospel. That's not God's plan. That's taking your desired plan and pasting it to God. Don't listen to such things. God has warned the Jews and he warns us today, they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. I have not sent them. All right, let's move on to to the promise now. The, The promises of the false prophets, they may be empty lies, but this doesn't mean that God does not give true promises. And what we see next is his sincere promise, his deliberate promise. And it begins with this dose of truth. God starts by setting the record straight on the length of the period of the exile that the people will be in. In in, in verse 10, he says, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. I will fulfill my word, God says, but it's not going to be for 70 years. In essence, he instructs the people to settle down and live out the abundance of the blessings that he has bestowed on them in the place where they are. And to worship and glorify him there as a testimony to the loss. So so the first step in, in realizing God's promise is accepting God's plan. Accepting that we are where we are because he chose to put us there. Next, we're going to come to the, this much-quoted verse uh, you know, it might be on the wall of your house somewhere. I hope so. Uh, we're going to come to Jeremiah 29:11, when God says, "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord, "plans for prosperity and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope." For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plan, pra- plans for prosperity and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You know, we tend to read this verse as providing comfort to us in hard times, a promise that everything will eventually work out. And well, we should, because it does give that promise. I think sometimes the mistake we make, though, is that when we believe God will work out all things according to our plan, it doesn't say that. In fact, in context, it says quite the opposite. Remember, the people here are chasing after false prophets who are telling them their desires, the plans they want are going to come true. But those plans are neither good plans, nor are they God's plan. We really need to focus here, I think, on the word, I know. God is essentially saying, only I know the plans I have for you. The false prophets do not. Yes, my plans lead to prosperity, a future, and a hope. And you can take comfort in that. But know first, they are my plans, and I know exactly what I'm doing. Sometimes it doesn't look like the right plans uh, will prosper us, even when they will. Uh, Anybody who's a parent can probably relate to God in this situation. I mean, how many times have your children disagreed with the plans that you have for them, right? When I was a kid, we, we grew up in South Africa, and periodically we had to go and get malaria shots. And the first time I was taken in for a malaria shot, I looked up and the needle was like 17 feet wide to me as a little kid. 
okay? And they brought that thing near to me, and I threw a, a, a stampy footy like you wouldn't believe, like they were going to hack off my arm with a saw or something. And I cried and so forth, but I was subdued. <laughs> and I went through a few seconds of pain. But you know what else? I never got malaria. My mom's plan was pretty good. My mom's plan was very good. In fact, it's the same way with God. He knows what he's doing. We need to trust him in the times when he doesn't seem like uh, things are going according to our plans. Because just look what he does. Uh, look what he promises his people here and, and, and when they trust and accept him. When they trust his good and perfect and deliberate plan. He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will let myself be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from where I sent you in exile. Treasure for a moment these words, especially if you're finding yourself in a, in a circumstances or place of exile. His promise is real. You will call upon me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and I will let myself be found by you. I will restore you. I will gather you. I will bring you back. God never fails us. He never does. Only we fail us. And after our failure, often our failure is rooted in not trusting him and not believing in his plan and not being obedient to his call to serve him exactly where we are. You know, there was someone else in history who found himself in a foreign place answering a call and carrying out a plan none of us would choose. And he surrendered a throne to do so. See, the Bible tells us that though he existed in the form of God, he didn't hold on to his divine position. He didn't fight to get back to the throne. Rather, as Philippians 4, 7 through 8 tells us, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Brothers and sisters, no one had greater, greater reason to question the plan of God than Jesus. No one. In the Garden of Gethsemane, grasping the full extent of the burden about to be laid upon him, the weight of all the world's sin poured out on him, literally sweating blood, as the Bible tells us, Jesus asks of the Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Put yourself in that very moment. Would you not have asked the same thing? You know you would have. Jesus knows you would have. Because at that moment, he was partaking in your humanity. And he still does. He's still there with you in the middle of it. As you sit in the place or circumstance you're desperately wanting to be, to be removed from, Jesus is saying, trust me, I know a thousandfold the desires of your heart for a change in these circumstances. But we've got to read the rest of that verse. Yet not as I will, Father, but as you will. Jesus knew what we now can appreciate, that the Father has a bigger plan for redemption, a plan that goes well beyond each of us individually and involves his world. For as John 3.16 reminds us, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. 
as Jesus demonstrated for us, that plan cannot be accomplished if we insist on our own way. So I want to ask you this. Do you trust God's plan? Do you trust his plan? Do you trust that by the blood of Jesus Christ, your sins have been wiped clean and your future is secure no matter where you happen to be now and no matter what you happen to have done? If you have, you already know in your heart that his plan is to prosper you and not to harm you. His plan is to give you that future and that hope, that hope that exceeds all expectations that you place in your own mortal, finite plan. But if you haven't, if you haven't accepted Jesus, the Son of God came for you, died for you, and through his resurrection made a way for you to be with him forever, outside of all circumstances and places you may be in right now, if you haven't accepted this, uh, brothers or sisters, you're following a deeply flawed, finite, and ultimately false plan. Won't you trust his plan? Won't you trust him? The gospel's not an option. His plan is not false or unintentional. Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. He is the plan. And his gospel is deliberate. It's deliberate. If you have accepted Jesus, then you know the circumstances you're in are according to his will, no matter what they may be. And his will is that you would glorify him as an expression of his love and his truth to those around you, no matter who they may be and no matter where you may be. And your exile may not be where you are right now. It may also be a place where he's calling you. You know, this weekend, uh, a band of brothers and I went up to West Virginia to build a ramp for a pastor uh, who didn't have the money or the resources to do it herself. And her husband was getting knee surgery. And, and so I found myself up there digging post holes. That wasn't my plan. And my back's telling me it wasn't a good plan. But you know, I walked away from that so blessed. Not just blessed by the work, but blessed by the brothers around me. So when you're calling into things, Lord, if he's calling you into these places that you think are exile, listen to him. Listen to him. You know, the Rose family, the one that's living uh, in Blank Creek, yeah, they finally got it. In fact, it shows all about how they, they settled into their new life and ultimately seized on the opportunity to engage with the people. They didn't build a house. They, they, they more or less took over the motel. There's a marriage in there. They got married. I, it's not a marriage God would ordain. But they also even sought the prosperity of those around them, starting businesses and doing things like that. Now, now these are characters. They're not even Christian. I mean, they're not even real, and, and, and I'm pretty sure from the context that the writers didn't make them to be Christians. But if they get it, if they know how to make the best of their circumstances, even if they live apart from God, maybe it shouldn't be so hard for us. Because we do have a plan, a divine plan that has us right where we are for a divine reason. And we have a divine plan because we have a deliberate gospel. Yes, God has a plan for you right where he has you right now, and that plan is to live out the gospel deliberately right where you are. So let's go about doing that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your plan. We thank you, Jesus, for the ultimate atoning plan that you you yielded yourself to, that we, we may have in you a true future eternity, a true future hope, Lord. 
Lord, help us where we are, wherever we are, Lord, to, to accept your plan and make your plan known to a world that desperately needs to hear, a world that needs to know your hope and not the hope of false, false prophets, Lord. Lord, give us the words, the power, insight, and the love, Lord, above all things, to love people well as you have loved them and to show them who you are. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.